Hello. It's live. You guys, are you guys with me? Hello? There you are. There's so many people, and they're all talking in the back. If you're in the back, you want to come in here. They're like, he's going to preach now, so let's all run away. It's probably smart. You know what I want to do today? I want to come down there. Because sometimes it feels like it's a little bit of a performance, because we're up here on the stage. You ever, like, what? You mean to come sit with you, Doug? Yeah. I'm going to come down, and I guess I'll be off-center, but that's okay. This is a little better. I'm a little closer to you. I feel like you can connect with me a little bit better. Happy Thanksgiving. We're going to start there with Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is where this sermon starts. Uh, Last week, I think I experienced very much like what the experience of Advent is for all of us, right? Advent is the time of year where we add a ton of stuff and then take time away. You notice that? It's like... We're going to give you a two-week vacation at the end of this thing, um, but we're going to add a ton of things on top of you in the midst of all of that. So like last week was Thanksgiving week, and uh, I, was, I was fortunate, and I got to travel and visit my family for Thanksgiving. Um, and we haven't, we haven't seen them in a while, and it was a long, hard trip to Helena, Montana in the snow. Um, so we left Wednesday to drive out there, and so that meant I have Monday and Tuesday to do all of my regular week's worth of work, 40 hours worth of work packed into Monday and Tuesday. And, you know, so I thought, okay, the, the thing that's probably most important that I do during the week is preparing for Sunday. I, maybe it's not the most important, but it's most work intensive. And uh, preparing for the sermon on Sunday, it involves usually coming in on Monday, spending time reading the scripture, um, listening to God, praying, reading it again, writing down notes and thoughts, listening some more, thinking about what, what God has done in me through that passage, what God might be saying to me through that passage, and then I put it aside. And I do some other things. I do some administration work. I work, you know, just whatever I have to do, credit card reports, finances for the church, all those kind of things. And then I come back to it for a little while on Tuesday. I read again, I pray, and then I just kind of work over it. And then I spend my rest of my day doing admin work with Casey or with Heidi and staff meetings and things like that. And then on Wednesday, I sit down and I read it again and I pray and I write the beginnings of an outline And then I put it aside, and I do other things. I visit people. I go to coffee or lunch. And then on Thursday, I pull it out. I read it. And by that time, I have prayed through that passage 15 times. I have studied it. I know what what it said to the original people that it was written to. I understand its hidden meanings. I know what God is saying to me in it. And then I can hear from him what he wants to say to you. And I write the whole sermon on Thursday and finish it and, boom, put it to bed. That's my process. I had to do all of that on Monday and Tuesday, and I thought, you know, I could probably smash that puppy in there and get her done. Probably can squish it in. Then Casey is like, Jamie, um, I need this. Jamie, can, can you do this? Jamie, we have this other thing. And to be really honest, I remember Casey interrupting me, and I remember doing things for Casey, but I can't remember what I did. I can't remember what those tasks were, right? And then on Tuesday, other things were coming up. And I'm like sitting there, I'm trying to go, God, what do you want to say to these people? I'm not even sure I understand the passage. Like, I don't even know what it means for me. And I'm like frantically writing something and working. And I go home for lunch. And he's like, how's your message? And I'm like, blah. 
you know, like, it's just going to be horrible. And so Wednesday, we drive to Montana, and I have some semblance of notes in my Bible to hang on to and to think about. And so basically, it just rattled around in my head for the whole Thanksgiving break. And I came back, we got back last night after driving through the snow, and I sat down and I said, okay, God, what is it you want to say to these people? Because this message is a hot mess. It's a hot mess. And he's like, hey, don't worry about it. Because what you're experiencing in that trying to write a message in two days, trying to pack all of that listening and praying and thinking and processing and listening to the Holy Spirit, what, what you're experiencing that is what we're experiencing at Christmas time. Advent is a holiday that was invented by the church. It's actually like the Christian New Year. I don't know if you know that. It's the Christian New Year. We celebrate this four-week period, and it's a period of waiting, and and it reminds us, takes us back to the church history, to, to Jewish history, really, of 400 years of silence when God made a promise that he would send a Messiah, and then there was 400 years of silence, 400 years of waiting, 400 years of being in captivity by the Babylonians, by the Seleucids, and then by the Romans. There's 400 years where the Jews were like, when are you coming? And they're waiting. And so Advent is meant to take us back into that and to help us wait, to listen, to be quiet, to be still, and to receive the baby when the baby comes on Christmas Day, which is New Year's Day for the church. It's where the church calendar begins. There's two high points in the church calendar. It's Christmas and, can anybody guess the other one? Easter, exactly. The birth of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And then there's a lot of normal time in between. This is what Advent is supposed to be. But what it has become, for, the, for American Christians especially, is a time of rushing, hurrying, worrying, stressing, freaking out, buying gifts, wrapping gifts, putting gifts under the tree, getting the tree, decorating the tree, decorating the house, Christmas parties, right? You know what I'm talking about? Living up to people's expectations, dealing with dysfunctional people. That's just the office party, Right? It's just the office party. Then you got to do it at home. We bought our Christmas tree yesterday, and we put it on top of the car. I got home, and I'm like, oh, man, there was this pit in my stomach. Man, now i got to pull out all the Christmas decorations and put them up and put them on the tree. And I'm like, I don't want Christmas to be like that. I don't want Christmas to feel like that. I don't want Christmas to feel like a rush. So you have all this hurry and stress and, and, and all of that stuff that comes along with the Christmas season. And then we go on top of that, and we're telling you as a church, let's get this nut job of a pastor, and he says, you know what? You know what Jesus really wants us to do as a church? He wants us to slow down, right? He wants us to, the council's coming together, we're making decisions, and Kelly's looking at me, she's going, slow down, we got to slow down on this, let's go, you know, and then then Curtis is like, hey, since we're slowing down, and we're talking about slowing down, we're making decisions slowly and prayerfully, we're asking you to live your life slowly and prayerfully, and then we're throwing more events on top, right? We want you to come to Advent night tonight, and we want you to come, we want you to bring some food, make some gifts for the people that aren't going to get gifts from other people, to remember that there are other people out there. We want you to come and go caroling with us, get off of work and rush down to the church so we can pray and slow down and go and be with people who haven't been with people so that we can see the people that God wants us to see and to love. We want you to slow down and put together an act for next weekend's Pullman Family Christmas. I got to tell you, every year I freak out about that one because it's like nobody signs up to do anything until the week before. And then magically we have two hours worth of people doing stuff on stage. I don't know what's wrong with you people. Just plan ahead a little bit. You add stress to my life. 
And then we want you to come to Christmas Eve service. You know, you've got to do your family meal. You've got to get the turkey in the oven or whatever it is you bake on Christmas. Maybe it's a, a tofurkey. I don't know if you're a vegetarian or something. But you get your meal ready, and then you want to come to church, and we want you to be quiet. Hold a candle for a few minutes and listen in silence. It's like it just doesn't seem to go together. Slowing down in this hurry world we live in. Listening and hearing from God and preparing a sermon in two days. It just doesn't work. This is the culture we're swimming in. It's the world that we're living in. And God is inviting us into something different. That's what Advent is for. It invites us into something different and something new. So I want to give you a gift right now. And a lot of Catholic churches, during the sermon, everybody's absolutely dead silent. And that's what it feels like right now. Okay, like this, we're in a cathedral and I'm wearing a penguin suit and you guys are all just being quiet and staring at me, waiting for me to give you a guilt trip or something. I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to give you is a gift of a deep breath. After Thanksgiving, before you go into Christmas, let's just take a big old breath. And when you breathe in, receive the Spirit of God. So ready? Let's just do it. Let's do one. One, two, three. You want another one? Can I give you more? Let's, let's take another one. You can let it out if you have it yet. Casey, keep breathing. Okay, yeah. Okay, let's take another one. Let's do that again. Does anybody want more? Emma Hall said this morning that we should stop at midway through a worship song, so we left you wanting more. So I'm going to do that with breathing. I'm going to leave you wanting more. Because this is what Advent is for. This is what it's here for, is to help you slow down. It's not saying do less. It's saying experience the busyness differently. It's saying walk through it with a, just a different pace. And that's what we're actually going to talk about today. Open your Bibles to, to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read you a fairly long piece of Scripture. Um, this is where the story of Advent actually, well, it doesn't begin, and we'll show you how it leads you back to it, but it's the beginning of the story. It's the beginning of the high point of the church calendar. We're going to read Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 5 and go all the way to verse 25. That's, if you do the math, watch this. I'm going to do the math. That's 20 verses. Anybody impressed? Fine. Don't be impressed. All right, from this point forward, you can, but don't encourage me. There's something going on over here between the speaking team. I don't know what they're doing. We're going to read the scripture, and we're going we're gonna to listen to it. And when we're finished, um, Heidi did this last week when everybody missed it. It's an ancient practice where you say the word of God for the people of God. And if you're the people of God, your response is, thanks be to God. You know, it's like an ancient response. So it sounds a little bit weird, but it's rhymey. So we'll use it. Does that work? All right. So let's, you want to practice it? Like, thanks be to God. There you go. Okay, that's what we'll do at the end of it. You ready? And because we're slowing down and I'm giving you rest, I'm not going to make you stand up. So stand up in your hearts and pay attention. All right. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Maybe. That might be how you say that. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Say barren. barren. 
and both were advanced in years. Say old. Shiver. Anyway. And while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, I'm going to pause right here and tell you that the priests in Israel, they had about 180,000 of them, and they each were basically like a part of the National Guard. They served two weeks a year, not consecutively, split up throughout the year, and then at the three major festivals, they took rotations and turns. So basically, he was on duty for his chance to serve as a priest before God, and everybody else it was kind of crazy. They took tithes and offerings at the temple, and they paid for all 180,000 priests full-time, and they only worked two weeks a year. That's a sweet job. Anyway, just saying. So, so <laughs> okay, where am I at? So he served as a priest uh, when his duty, division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood. He was then chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Pause again. So the temple had many chambers that worked their way in. The very central chamber was the the, uh, Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant, if you guys remember the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones, the golden thing with the, the wings on it and the angels, it represented the very presence of God. It was his throne. So it would sit in the Holy of Holies, and in front of that was a very thick curtain so that you could not see through it. And in front of that was the altar of incense. Basically, other than cleaning the Holy of Holies, this is as close as you could get to God's throne. And he was drawn by lot, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, to go in, and what he would do is take some burning incense and throw it on the pile of already burning incense on this little altar, make a bow and stand up and then walk out. 45 seconds max. That's all it would take. All right, back to the story. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Of all places you'd expect to find an angel, it'd be right here before the throne of God. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, understatement of the year, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, God will go before him, in the spirit and power of Elijah, and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Say prepared. Good, you're still with me. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Or in more modern English, how is that going to happen? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Say old. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now back to the people outside. And the people... We're waiting for Zechariah. Remember 30, 40 seconds this should take? Now he's had this whole conversation with an angel. And they were wondering at the delay. See, there's a, there was a belief that if you did something wrong before God, you would fall down dead. In fact, when they cleaned the Holy of Holies, 
they, they, they were so afraid they would actually tie a bell and a rope to the guy so he could go in there and dust the Holy of Holies. And if he touched the ark with his hand and fell down dead, they could drag him out. Okay? So they're wondering, what is going on? He must have done something wrong. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at the delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. The word of God for the people of God. All the women remembered. The word of God for the people of God. So the big question you're asking yourself is, if that's the word of God for the people of God, what's the word of God for me in the middle of all of that? And that's exactly what I've been asking for the last week. God, what is your word in the midst of all of this? I mean, it's a great story. It's very interesting. There's really cool historical details. You can imagine yourself there. You can see this all happening. You can almost smell the incense. But I don't understand what the message is. I don't understand what you're calling us to in this. And what does this have to do with Advent? And you're all thinking, well, you picked the passage. I know. I felt stuck at one point. I was like, I can't change now. It's really interesting because this story is multiple layered. Multiple layered? It's like a cake, right? There's just layers and layers and layers of things going on here. And there's actually some code words. So the Hebrews... They knew their Old Testament really well. Now, you may have heard this, that for a Jewish boy, when he turned 13 to become a man, had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Those are the stories in Genesis and Exodus. It's the, the, the lists of people and numbers. It's, it's the, the Ten Commandments. It's, it's all of God's work among His people up to the judges, up to entering the Promised Land. And so they had these stories swirling around in their heads. And when Luke writes this story to this man, Theophilus, but intending to share it with a broader audience, he is writing in code words that help us remember the bigger story. Some big code words in here, like old, like barren, like unable to have a child. They take us back in the story, back past the exile. The 400 years of waiting. It's like they take us back past the great kings of Solomon and David. They take us back even further past the judges. They take us back even further past the people of God being a people of God, a family, a nation in exile. Not in exile, but in, but in slavery. It takes us back even further to when that family was just, for, again, for the third time, just two people, one man, one woman. Do you guys ever notice that in the Bible, that three times God used one man and one woman to save the world? First time was Adam and Eve. Second time was Noah and his wife. The third time is Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah were old. and They had been given a promise. And they, God said to him, when you follow my ways, if you go where I show you, I will bless you and I will make you a great nation. Your family will outnumber the stars and you will be a blessing to all the people. And Abraham laughs at this because he says, I am old and my wife is old too. 
Shall I have a baby at 100 years old? And God says, yes, yes, you will. So we're reading the story and we see Zechariah and Elizabeth who are old but righteous, who are barren but not forgotten. And God sees them and in their distress, he says, I'm starting something new. Remember Abraham and Sarah? Remember what I did through them? I'm about to begin again through you. It takes us back to remind us that God moves at a different pace than we do. God's pace is slow. Now, you don't want to get, you're like, some people get really upset at that. Like, God's never slow. By our standards, he's kind of slow. We just were dragged in a few words through over 2,000 years of God's redemption plan being worked out in the world, generation to generation, God always faithful, God always working, God always asking, God always speaking, generation to generation for 2,000 years, then 400 years of silence. But God was waiting for the right time because he's never late. He never gives up and he is always faithful. But it feels slow for us. This passage invites us into that pace because it's going to take us and it's going to say to Zechariah, You're going to have a child. My next step in this redemption plan is that you're going to go home and a child is going to be conceived. Wait a minute, that's going to take some time. How many know that conceiving a child doesn't just happen all on its own and it's never instantaneous? It takes time. And then the child has to be born. He will be born, and you will call him John. Well, that takes at least nine months. And then we know that babies don't talk, right? They don't even feed themselves. So they've got to grow up. So now we're talking another 20, 30 years before he has grown and educated and has learned to speak and has listened to the Lord before he begins his ministry in the desert, which Luke chapter 3 says, his message becomes, make straight paths for the Lord. So even this moment, God is inviting us into a different pace. We're like, yes, rescue us now. It's been 400 years. I'm tired of waiting. I want Christmas Day now. And he says, oh, we got to have at least nine months of pregnancy. We've got to have some time for this kid to grow up. It's going to take time and patience. It's slow work. God's promises are not usually fulfilled in an instant. They grow in us. They take time to work their way out. And God invites us to be patient and to wait and to listen. This is an invitation to move at the pace of God. Now, that pace, though, feels so foreign to us. We who, just last week, were rushing from place to place, who were driving from place to place, who were trying to get a turkey finished so that they could get the stuffing in and get it cooked before dinner time, right? Who, who are hurrying from thing to thing, who are trying to make it to the office party and get all the other things done, too. It's like moving to a different time zone. When I, this last summer, I went to New York for a few days, or last spring, went to New York for a week for a training. And it was crazy because it's a three-hour time zone difference. I flew there. I got there around midnight, their time, which is like, it's three hours different. I can't do the math. It's nine o'clock our time. So I was like wide awake, you know, like not time for bed yet. 
two o'clock in the morning, I'm finally getting myself to be able to fall asleep. And then my best friend from college, he flew from Boston to meet me for the morning because I had a, a kind of a, a jet lag day, you know, a jet lag day to be ready. And so he shows up at my door at six o'clock, their time. I had like four hours of sleep. And then I woke up and like, everything is off. You know that feeling? Everything is off when you're in jet lag. You're not hungry when you're supposed to be. You're not sleepy when you're supposed to be. Your body wants to take a nap when it's not supposed to. Everything is off. That's what it feels like when we're invited to move at God's pace, to enter that story that is taking its time to work its way out. We want to rush. We want to hurry. But God's pace is different. And we feel jet lagged when we get into it because I'm hungry when God's not putting food on the table. Because I'm ready for that fulfillment when God's still wrapping it. And that's why we invite you to slow down. And that's why we add these things into the Advent season, to give you bumps along the road to help you move into God's time zone. So it's an invitation to move at God's pace. The second thing that I drew from this story that I felt like the Lord was speaking to us as a church was John's message. It's to make straight paths, to make way from the Lord. In our church parking lot out here, there is a spot around the far back corner, and if you've parked back there in the last couple of years, you know that every year a giant pothole forms in that spot. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's several people nodding their heads. Some of you may have lost your car in there. It gets very deep. It's because all the cars turn and the pressure goes on there, and it digs a hole, and it digs a hole, and it digs a hole, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, right? The message that God speaks through John to his people is to make straight paths, to fill in the valleys and to level the hills so that there is a path that is free from potholes, that does not have giant mountains in it that are like speed bumps, so that God may enter in, make straight paths. That was his purpose, his basic message that he was called Luke however, has got this other message through the whole thing that he wants us to get. He is talking about what is it like to be a spirit-filled believer in Christ. Luke and Acts, the two books that actually go together, he wrote them together. He says, what does the spirit-filled life look like? The spirit-filled life looks like a person who has received the good news, who has made straight paths in their life. They've filled in the potholes, They've pushed aside the roadblocks, and God is entering in. They are receiving the good news. And then you know what happens when people receive the good news in Luke and Acts? They do one of two things. They sing or they preach. Every time, they sing or they preach, except for this one time. The first person to receive the good news is Zechariah. And Zechariah approaches this good news with a speed bump. He pushes a roadblock out into the road that he is supposed to be making a straight path. He pushes a roadblock out there, and that roadblock is disbelief. This isn't how life works, he says to the angel. I am old. My wife is also old. Old people don't have children. It's not a good idea. Amen. He's right. By that standard, I'm also old. I shouldn't be having more children. No. No. Roadblock. Roadblock. Speed bump. No. So here he is. He's pushing this speed bump before the Lord. The Spirit is trying to fill him. 
God is bringing the good news to him. And he says, nope. How can that be? He doubts. It's not the first time this has ever happened. Yeah, every time God has brought good news, it happened with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham says, how can this be? We're old. And he laughs. He laughs at God. And then he has a son named Isaac, which names means laughter. Gideon, one of the old, one of the judges in the book of Judges, he was sitting down one day and God says, I'm calling you to deliver your people. And he's like, are you sure it's me? If, it's, if, if you're really talking to me, God, and then he does like this whole process of testing God and his word. Do you, do you, if you really mean this, God, I'm going to put this blanket on the ground. And when I wake up in the morning, it's going to be wet. If it's really you, God, God makes the blanket wet. But he's like, oh, well, that's exactly what would happen in nature, right? If we put something outside, it, the dew gets it wet. So here's what I'm going to do. God, I'm, I, I don't believe that one, so I'm putting a blanket out. And if it's dry in the morning and everything else is wet, then I'll believe you. He tests God. And God doesn't rebuke either of these people. He just answers them faithfully and patiently. But Zechariah, something different happens with him. He says, I don't believe it. He is filled with disbelief. He puts this speed block out before God, and God says, that's it. You're going to be silent. You're going to be quiet. We're going to work on knocking down that speed bump. We're going to make a straight path for the way of the Lord. Now, when that same message comes to his wife, Elizabeth, you know what she does? She sings a song. She says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me and he took away my reproach from among the people. When, he, when, when Jesus, or when God comes to Mary and she says, may it be done unto me as you have spoken. Then she goes and meets Elizabeth and they both sing a worship song. It's called the Magnificat. That's the Latin term for it. And it's found in Luke chapter 1, just a few uh, verses down. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And she's just overflowing with this worship song, prompted by the Spirit, because the path was straight for the Lord to enter. The path was straight for the Lord to enter. So the question this brings up for me is in this Advent season... What are the potholes? What are the roadblocks? How big are the valleys and how high are the mountains? And what do I need to do to make straight the way of the Lord? Now, this isn't a workspace gospel. It's a response to the good news because the good news is that God's coming to you. God's coming to you. He came to Zechariah in the middle of his work. He was in his work day. And clearly, he didn't expect God to show up. But God showed up. God came to him, and he spoke to him, and God is coming to you, and God is speaking to you in this Advent season. He wants to work and to come into you so that you can speak and so that you can worship. What are the speed bumps and the roadblocks that you place before him? What are the things that you add to your busy life that take away from this season where we listen to God and we make straight paths for him to enter? I could make a list. I can make my own list. And that's what I'm going to do. Is I'm going to make my own list. And I'm going to invite you to make your list. Because I don't want to guess at what you have. I don't want to guess at your speed bumps and roadblocks. You know full well what they are. And God is speaking to you now in the midst of that. But what I want to do instead is to show you how God helped Zechariah. Did you see it? God actually helped Zechariah. 
God helped Zechariah fill in the pothole and to remove the roadblock, and he did it through silence. Now, we read this and we say, oh man, that's, that's pretty tough from God. If he didn't never, he had never punished somebody before this moment for speaking his mind, for saying, ah, I don't believe that can be true. Instead, he was always just faithful and he proved himself by doing it, but this time, something different is happening. Now, one way of looking at it is that, you know what, something very different is happening in this text. This, we're not just talking about the birth of Isaac, which was the, the first in a long line of children that multiplied and became a family of nations. This is the messenger of the Messiah. This is a big deal, and you don't go down in this. That, that's true. But I don't think God is necessarily punishing him for his disbelief. Instead, he is bringing a correction that helps him level the path. He is giving him a gift, and the gift is silence. His, does, his disbelief gets in the way of the good news coming to him, and so God says, well, how about you just be quiet for a while and listen? How about you just be quiet for a while and let me do the work? How about you just be quiet for a while and not trust in your words, your ability, your gifts, your skills to make things happen? How about we do this in my timing and in my way, and you just be quiet and sit back and watch? Sit back and watch what I'm about to do. It reminds me of the Exodus when God says to Moses, I'm about to show Pharaoh all of my wonders. Be silent and listen. This passage is an invitation to move at God's pace. It's an invitation to make straight paths. And it's an invitation to enter into silence and stillness and waiting like Zechariah did. God silences him so that he wouldn't miss the work that he was about to do. Can you imagine if it just ended with that? I don't believe that's going to happen. And the angel says, all right, and leaves. All right. You don't believe it? I'll go find somebody else. Zechariah would have missed out on John. And if he had missed out on John, who was saying, the Messiah is coming, the one whose sandals I am unworthy to tie, whose tennis shoes I am unworthy to, to take off, whose boots, whose winter snowy cold boots I'm unworthy to clear the snow off of. He didn't say those things, but I'm giving you the image for today. He would have missed Jesus. But instead... He had a straight path because he entered in silence. He silences him as a gift, not a punishment, so that he wouldn't miss the work of God. Silence is something that happens throughout the entirety of Scripture. And you guys are familiar with some of those passages. How about this one? Be still and know that I am... They said half-heartedly. Be still and know that I am... That still word is silent. Be quiet. Stop trying to make it happen. Stop rushing around. Stop trying to wrap the gifts. Be still. Be silent. Or how about this one? The Lord is in his holy temple. The very place where Zechariah found himself that day. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent. God is God and we are not. Be silent before him. Allow the silence to silence your disbelief. Allow the silence 
to teach you who is God. Allow the silence to show you his peace. Allow the silence to show you his rest. Nine months of silence, Zachariah got. That is an incredible, difficult gift. Sign language, right? Point to your stomach, I'm hungry. Silence, though, gave him the space to know that God was God and to know that God was faithful and to know that God was working out his will and his way in his time and not Zachariah's. He taught Zachariah through his silence that God works in ways that are outside of our human understanding, that God speaks to us, and when he speaks, it brings life. He speaks to barren places. He speaks to sick places. He speaks to broken places, and those sick places are healed. Those broken places are restored. The barren places are filled with new life, and he had to learn it through silence, nine months of it. The invitation of this passage is to enter into the silence and to allow God to speak to you through it, to make space, to make straight paths, and to be still before the Lord. And that's what we mean when we say slow down. It's not just slow down your pace. It's slow down your spirituality. It's let your soul catch up to your body. It's about engaging in the things of this season in such a way that you recognize God's coming to you and you're not putting up barriers and you're knocking down valleys. You're filling in potholes and you're allowing God to come so that when he comes, you may speak. You may worship. You may sing with Mary My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My body has joined that song. Stillness and silence. So I wanted to end my sermon today with a poem. The staff went on a staff retreat. uh, Gosh, see, the days are already jumbled. A little while ago. Could have been yesterday, could have been two weeks ago. I'm not sure anymore. And one of the things that we did is we made a fire. When I say staff, Janice wasn't able to be there, but Janice, Casey, Heidi, and myself, um, the primary pastoral staff, and uh, we went out to a cabin and we made a fire. And we built this fire in a little fireplace, and we sat in front of it. We were actually supposed to go have silence and stillness by ourselves, but it was too cold, so we're like gathering around the fire. And I brought this poem And it's aptly titled Fire. And I want to read it to you. And I'm not going to, I guess I'm not going to tell you much about what it's about. Because I want you to ponder. I want want you to think about this. If, If the Advent season is a building of a fire that God wants to work in your heart, what space do you need? So I'm going to read this to you. And I'm gonna, I'll just ask a question at the end of it, and we'll spend a moment. I'm going to give you another gift, a gift of silence, to ponder and to ask and reflect. And then we'll close by standing and we'll sing the doxology, which is praising God for his blessings, the things that he is pouring and pouring into us. Is that okay with you? All right, here it comes. I'm going to sit down for this. What makes a fire burn? is the space between the logs, a breathing space. Too much of a good thing, too many logs, packed in too tight, can douse the flames almost as surely as a pail of water would 
So building fires requires attention to the space in between as much as to the wood. When we are able to build open spaces in the same way we have learned to pile on logs, then we can come to see how it is fuel and the absence of fuel together that makes fire possible. We only need to lay a log lightly from time to time. A fire grows simply because the space is there with openings in which the flame that knows just how it wants to burn can find its way. The invitation of the passage is to make space for God, to move at his pace, to make space so that the path is clear, and to do that through silence and stillness. So the question I want to ask you in reflection is twofold. First of all, what fire might God be igniting in you this Advent season? And second, what space do you need to make so that it can take and burn? Let's take a moment and listen to the Lord and what he's inviting you to.